Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today on Conversations from Here, I speak with Memphis-raised author of Tom Petty and Me, the former DJ and music industry promo man, John Scott. Throughout his decades in the music world, he has the distinction of having worked with some of the biggest names in the business. He is also the guy who, in 1977, boldly pushed for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers to be heard on the radio, despite resistance from the powers that be at ABC Records. The rest, as they say, is history. His epic friendship with Tom lasted 40-plus years, until Tom's untimely death in 2017. We talk about everything, including a whole lot of Tom Petty stories involving acts of kindness, record industry craziness, funny faxes, and the friendship of a lifetime. In true Southern fashion, it's a long chat, but well worth your time. Settle in and enjoy. Here's me and John. Hello there, John Scott. Thank you so much for joining me today. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't have missed it for the world. <laughs> so good to talk to you. And, and we're going to have uh, a lot of Tom Petty stories in this talk. Um, but I, I did want to talk um, at first about your origins. I know you're from Memphis, Tennessee originally, right? Correct. I was 10 years old when I first heard I was laying in the bed with the transistor radio under my pillow because I wasn't supposed to be listening to the radio. And I heard, that's all right, mama. Mm -hmm. And and that just shook me to the core. And um, so music is, it runs through my veins. Um, the first uh, black station, African-American station was also in Memphis. And they were playing things like, uh, you know, Little Richard and mm -hmm. Sister Rosetta Tharp and... Mm -hmm. And um, I got to hear that too. And so, and when I was 10 years old, I knew I was gonna be a DJ because my mom used to call uh, a local station and request songs for her and her brothers. And when the DJ would come on and read their names, she would just like smile and I would do anything for my mom. 
So I said, <clears throat> at that minute, I said, I'm going to be a DJ. And she went out and bought a tape recorder for me to practice. And I practiced for quite some time. And I became a DJ. Because mm -hmm. you, you ended up going to, uh, much to your dad's consternation, you went to the Keegan School of Broadcasting, right? Correct, yeah. I went to University of Memphis. He, he went to the bank. I remember borrowing some money. I can't remember how much it was for me to enroll at University of Memphis. And I just hated it. I it was a, You would go downtown in Memphis and there's this big glass building and you, a DJ was sitting there and, and and you could see the controls and the knobs and the tape recorder. And, and I was like, this is where I want to be. So I quit. And um, I, he, he made me get my own, my own, he, he made me pay for my own tuition and ride a bus up there. And um, that's where Johnny Cash went to. Johnny Cash was a DJ in Memphis and that's where he went to school, Keegan's. Mm -hmm. Wow, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, check it out, Google it. I will. <laughs> And, well, and then the other thing is that like, when you're paying for your tuition and you get a job and you're working in a movie theater, you had a momentous meeting with someone very significant. Yeah, I did, much like Tom Petty did. Um, matter of fact, when we shared the stories, it was kind of like a same kind of story. But yeah, I, I to to one of the jobs I had, I was an usher at a movie theater, and I also worked behind the the candy counter. And it was a pretty big theater in Memphis. And he rent, rented theaters out at midnight for him and his friends. It'd be about 40 people. And they would watch whatever movie Elvis picked out for that night. I think it was Spartacus that night, as a matter of fact. And, um, and my boss told me before they came in, said, what, if anybody walks over and wants anything, candy, popcorn, just give it to them. Because they rented the whole place out. Mm -hmm. And so... I see the whole group of people come in and out of the blue, Elvis starts walking towards me by himself, which I didn't expect that at all. I thought one of his, one of his, they called him the Memphis Mafia, would come over and buy whatever he wanted. And, uh, and I'm, a, I'm a you know 16, 17 year old kid shaking in my boots going, oh my God, here comes Elvis. And he came over and said, now doing my best Elvis voice. Um, how about a couple of boxes of those raisinets? And so I reached in, got the box, I'm shaking, get the two boxes of raisinets, if you know what they are. Yes. And handed them to him. And you know what he said? Paul McDaniel. You know what he said? He said, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> and and that, that was a... <laughs> That was an incredible day for me. That's the only time I ever met Elvis. But uh, because when I when I got into the to uh, radio in 1967, Elvis was kind of like uh, not as hip as he was. I think he might have started the Vegas thing. I don't know. I can't remember. But um, never met him after that. But uh, I told that story to his daughter, um, Marie. And, and oh, Lisa Marie. Lisa Marie, sorry. We were at the uh, Grammy, um, little Grammy uh, party, and they would interview. They interview everybody, and that comes on. And then after that, the band usually. Oh, they open it up for questions, and then the band plays, you know, a couple of songs. 
and uh, I knew that they they record everything at the Grammy Museum. So I raised my hand. I told the story. I said, "You know what he said?" She went, "I have no idea what he said." And I went, "Thank you. Thank you very much." And the whole place, <laughs> the whole place cracked up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my one and only time meeting Elvis. Talk about a validate. I mean, that's really a, what an amazing validation for you as a young kid who, you know, you're surrounded by music, all kinds of music. You're in love with it. You want to make it your life. You become a DJ and um, you are at uh, WMCFM 100 in 1967, huh? right? And that was a significant station because they started playing all kinds of stuff. It was a very significant station. Um, we had. 400,000 watts of power. We were the most powerful rock station in America, FM station in America. And the limit now is 100,000 watts. And since our station had, it was, it was a three call letter station, WMC, they uh, gave us the grandfather clause that we didn't have to go down to 100,000 watts. <clears throat> so I, I didn't really know what 400,000 watts meant until I sat down, played a record, and the phones start ringing, and I'm getting calls from Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, and I'm going, how the hell are you hearing me? And they go, you're coming in loud and clear. And so I learned what 400,000 watts meant. And we were, we, I was lucky enough to, to work at the station where we could play whatever we, we wanted to play. Yeah. And we, you know, had a pretty, all the DJs were <clears throat> close to each other, and we, listen to a lot of music together and we made a vow that we would never play a record that we didn't think was good in our opinion because usually if you do the audience will call you right out what a piece of crap that is they have a request line and um i was lucky enough to um to be be hired there and um uh, i've got a bunch of stories about things back in the well, 70s, late early, early 70s, that were, you know, they don't, they don't happen anymore. Like, you, see, you get a call from a, a, a listener on a request line, and um, all of a sudden you start knowing these people. They call up and request the song, and, oh, it's Mary and Bill or whoever, and they would call you every night. And Bill called one night and said, hey, you, you should come over to our place one time and smoke a joint with us. We live near the station. And I said, yeah, you know, what's your, what's your address? And I wrote it down. <clears throat> and the next night about 11 o'clock, 11.15, I put on Inagata de Vida for 18 minutes. I jumped in my car. <clears throat> I drove to their apartment, knocked on the door. And went, who is it? John Scott. No, you're on the radio. It can't be you. I said, you told me to come over. And so they opened the door slowly and walked in and I left about 10, 15 minutes later, which they couldn't believe it was me. And I got back to the station and I had locked myself out of the station. And I get into the car and I hear this, the record had ended. And I was pounding on the door. So finally somebody from the TV side of the station came in and unlocked the door. But I never, nobody ever told me, I mean, nobody, my boss never told me he heard that. So but we would do just crazy things back then. Those were the days of radio that will never, in my mind, exist again, that you can play what you want to play. 
I mean, there's still a few stations, but for a DJ to be able to play what he wants to play, it's a rarity these days. And if it is a station where the, where the DJ is the curator of, of what's heard, it's usually a tiny independent station, not something right. with 400,000. Right, exactly. Watts. And we, we, we were the first station probably in the South to start playing, you know, Jimi Hendrix and the Doors and in a, the Iron Butterfly. And, yeah, and, and Bowie also, right? We were on David Bowie very early uh, in 1969, I believe it was. <clears throat> he had a song on an album from Glastonbury Fair, a big festival in England. And we started playing that song. We liked it. I can't remember the name of it. But then when he put Hunky Dory out, we yeah. were just all boy all the time. And then um, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust was his next album. <clears throat> and the local RCA promotion man, um, he, he knew we were playing the hell out of David Bowie and they were, we were selling like the record like crazy. And he arranged an interview. And um, we knew more about David Bowie than he knew himself. And he was, he was like staggered. He, and he loved Memphis because, you know, a lot of British musicians have a fond, um, fondness for Memphis, Tennessee. Absolutely. All the blues, birthplace of rock and roll and the cradle of soul. So we did an hour interview with him. And a week later, I got a package in the mail. It said D Jones, which stood for David Jones. David Jones and the address and I opened it up and it was a copy of Ziggy Stardust. And it was the first copy that was ever sent to the US. And I actually, I still had that copy in its frame. Wow. But um, so we started playing Ziggy Stardust and Memphis was gonna be the first date on his concert tour because he was in love with us and Memphis. And it turned out there's a station in Cleveland that played David Bowie a lot as well. Um, and logistically, the first stop, Cleveland, was was closer to London than Memphis was. So we were the second stop. And he played two show, two shows in Memphis uh. in one day and uh, came to my house for a party afterwards. And it was him and his wife, Angie. Mm -hmm. And they knocked on the door. We had a bunch of people there and knocked on the door and I opened the door and I couldn't tell I couldn't tell them apart. Right. <laughs> Yes, both very androgynous <laughs> and beautiful. <laughs> but uh, those were the days. I mean, we had so much fun back then. I mean, music at that time will never exist in my mind again, ever. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I mean, people that really loved playing their music, their guitars. And, you know, it, it's just, I don't think it'll ever happen again. That quality of music that existed back then and creative and creative as hell i mean and um i got to go i got to hang out at Stax records a lot <clears throat> we were playing a lot of uh stacks music we played there was two Stax live albums one in europe and one in paris and we could like so we could play whatever we wanted to and we had people would play otis reading nine minute version of trial of tenderness and so the people at Stacks um, got to know us and they invited us over many times to Stacks Records where I can't tell you the number of 
hits that came out of Stax Records. Oh my God. I mean, Wilson Pickett, the Staples Singers, Otis, just uh, unbelievable. And you were there at that time. That's just Absolutely. amazing. Absolutely. And um, they would have parties. And um, as a matter of fact, they had a Christmas party every, every year. And it's called the Stax Vault Christmas Party. And <clears throat> our station was the host of the of the night, and we were the DJs who came on stage. And um, and Janis Joplin was the closing act. And in that particular Stax audience of ten thousand people, they weren't real familiar with Janis Joplin. And um, she came on and, and after the first song, she walked off the stage and came back about 20 minutes later. But anyway, after the, after the um, show, we went over to the owner of Sachs Records House, Jim, Jim Stewart is his name. And he, he was the president of Sachs Records, he founded it. And we're sitting there and she comes and sits next to me and says, you wanna you know, swig of Southern Comfort? <laughs> I'm sitting there going, hell yeah. So I took a swig of selling comfort. And here me and Janice are friends now. And next thing I know, she has a cigarette in her mouth and she just put it on the floor and put it out on shag, brand new shag carpet. And Jim's <laughs> wife saw that and threw him out of, out of the house. But anyway. There, was, there were just so many great days uh, in my life with music at that time. I mean, I was a little Richard fan, Chuck Berry fan, all this stuff because of the, uh, the African-American station in, in town. And um, we had a DJ by the name of uh, Dewey Phillips. If you've never heard of Dewey Phillips, Google, Google him and you'll see that he was the first guy who played Elvis. And he was one of the craziest DJs you ever heard in your life. If he didn't like a record, he'd pick it up off the turntable. And he would say things that you've never heard anybody else say. I mean, they weren't obscene. They just, I, I just listen to Dewey Phillips. It's up on YouTube. Anyway. I, uh, I will. And, and, and this was a time too where the DJs were the ones who had the supreme power of what got heard. And this is to, of course, to come up later for you with regard to Mr. Tom Petty. But um, it, you went on to become the uh, promo guy at MCA Records not that long after this. Well, see, I worked at the station from 67, I think, until 1974. Mm -hmm. And around, you know, since we were playing anything we wanted to play, a lot of record promotion people started coming and hanging out at the station. And it actually came out to my house. Uh, I had the seven to midnight shift and there would be promo guys at my house, you know, wanting to play records for me. And um, so I found out, well, to bring it back just a little bit, when I was 18 years old, I believe it was in 1965, 19 maybe I heard under assistant west coast promo man by the rolling stones and I went well that sounds like a pretty cool job maybe I'll do that one of these days not even, you know who knew anyway um 
And did so, you know what a West Coast promo guy did at that yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, the lyrics of the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones did that song and, and, and they, they, um, they pretty much lay out what a promotion guy does. He goes to city to city, he helps get the records played, he hangs with the group. And I just thought, wow, that sounds cool. Anyway, and then I, so the promotion guys started hanging out. I found out that they had an expense account. They were making more money than DJs were. And a guy from MCA Records came in and said, you know, we think you have a pretty good ear for music. We want to hire you as a promotion man. And I was kind of like, I didn't want to get out of radio, but at the same time, I was like, it was a it was an increase in pay with an expense account. And I said to myself, it's almost the same job. As a DJ, I'm turning listeners on to music. As a promotion guy, I'm trying to turn radio stations on to music. So for me, it was the same thing. And uh, they hired me as the local MCA records promotion guy. And my territory was Little Rock, Arkansas, Nashville, Tennessee, and stations in between that area. And um, I, I was doing pretty good. Um, <laughs> one of the first, uh, let's see, uh, I think I put this in a book, I can't remember. But one of the first jobs that they, they when I got there, they called and said, Olivia Newton-John's coming to town. We want her to promote your new single, her new single, and then drive her to Nashville to meet the top 40 record people there and play their, play their new song. And um, the guy in Memphis played, we went to dinner with him. He didn't seem too interested. And uh, for some reason, I don't know why, but um, we drove to Nashville. And as we we're driving to Nashville, MCA Records sent out a cassette of every new artist that was coming out, you know, in the foreseeable future. And we, Olivia and I were sitting there driving and I was driving and we were listening to music and she'd go, hey, that's pretty good. Or, uh, I don't that doesn't sound very good. And then this reggae sounding song came on and we both kind of like, this is pretty good. And she said, this is really, really good, but their name of the band is stupid, Mud Crutch. <laughs> so, so I go to, to the station, the FM station in Nashville and they knew who I was and they knew I wasn't really promoting something I didn't like. And they added Mud Crutch to the station playlist. And I remember calling my boss, my first ad that I've gotten is Mud Crutch and Depot Street. And he said, John, Depot Street is a single. There's no album. It's on Shelter Records. Just go work Olivia Newton-John's record. Forget about Mud Crutch. And I forgot about Mud Crutch. I never even knew who they were who the singer was, I never I never knew anything about them until a short time later, right. a few years later. But um, I was doing pretty good, so they moved me to Atlanta to be a regional promotion man, I think after about like six weeks or so being in Memphis. And uh, that's when Leonard Skinner's first album came out. And I got to be very good friends with Skinner. I loved, I was a regional guy now, and I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, or to Miami to uh, cities in that area of Atlanta, and uh, I was having a blast. I mean, hanging with Skinner was uh, was an incredible thing. And uh, again, I was started. I was doing pretty good. The bands liked me. Skinner liked me. 
and um, and that's when Freebird, I believe, first came out. Uh -huh. And um, they moved me to Los Angeles shortly thereafter to be head of album promotion at MCA Records, which for a Memphis kid going to Los Angeles was like insane. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I'd been there one time and I couldn't believe Los Angeles. And MCA Records was on the back lot of Universal Studios where all the TV shows were made, films were filmed. They had a New York, you know, back lot, you know, all the buildings that they film on. They have a Western, you know, Western lot, uh, street. And anyway, um, I loved it in Los Angeles. I, I you know, I, I was on top of the world. And this was the dream. This was absolutely the dream. Happening. Absolutely the dream. I mean, here I am. I've got my own parking place and on a lot of Universal Studios with my name on it. And I'm hanging with The Who, Leonard Skinner, uh -huh. El Elton John, Golden Earring, Living Newton John, uh, Wishbone Ash. Uh, and I'm like a kid in a candy store. And all these guys, they, they, they really liked me and we got along well because I would go on the road with the bands. And my job was a promotion guys to call radio stations and try to get them to play your record. Mm -hmm. And also to go on the road with bands to make sure that, you know, all the tickets are there in the DJ's hands. They go to the show, we have a party beforehand and we pass out tickets and we take a bus and everybody goes to the concert and there's a party afterwards. And um, uh, so that was like, I mean, I was like, just out of my mind crazy having a good time and then one day in 19 i would say 70 70 no 76 um we were in a meeting at the president's office it happened every week all the promotion guys were there um the national promotion people sales people advertising people it was just a big meeting at president's office and the president would play records and the last one he played was anybody heard this record by a kid named Johnny Cougar and he held the album up and I had actually had listened to it and there were a few songs on there that I liked so I raised my hand I was the only guy that raised his hand and he put on a song called Chestnut Street Revisited and I liked that song he asked me what song do you like I told him and about 30 seconds later he picks the turntable up and just tosses the record who the hell would play a song by somebody named Johnny Cougar? And it was probably a stupid manager who gave him that name. Right. Tony DeFreeze. And when I heard the word Tony DeFreeze, that was David Bowie's manager. Uh-huh. So I'm going, if Tony DeFreeze is David Bowie's manager, and now he's Johnny Cougar's manager, there must be something here. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, the, I remember the president said, who, who signed this kid? And the A&R guy, head of you know, the people who looked for acts, said, I did on the strength of a couple of demos. And afterwards, um, he came up to me because the president, they hated, well, they hated Johnny Cougar. He came to Los Angeles the first time in a meeting and he told the head of international, um, international, records 
at the MCA to go to go fuck himself. So they weren't real happy with this kid and they hated his music. Mm-hmm. And the A&R guy comes out afterwards and said, hey, John, you really like this guy? I said, I really do like this guy. And um, he said, do you want to go see him play? I went, sure. Where do I have to go? He said, Seymour, Indiana. And where the hell's that? Well, it's about (laughs) an hour or so out of Indianapolis. And so I flew, and he said, nobody's ever seen this kid. Mm -hmm. I flew to Indianapolis, got a rental car, Pop Johnny Cougar's cassette in, and I am just, you know, I'm flying and uh, driving to Seymour. And when I got there, <laughs> there was a parade on Main Street. Seymour's a very small town. And there was this parade on, on Main Street. And I'm like, the, the, you know, the, the Shriners are driving their old cars around, <laughs> the Conquerors, the guy on her tractor. And at the end, I, I see this uh, limousine come up and a guy sticking his head through the top of the top of the, what do you call it? The, the, oh, the sunroof? Sunroof, yeah. And he's got his short sleeve shirt on, it's rolled up, there's a pack of cigarettes in his, in the, in the sleeve and and some kid, I, I kept getting closer because I was just, well, what the hell is that Labor Day? Is that 4th of July? What is this? And I hear some kids go, hey, hey, Mellencamp, you're Johnny Cougar, fuck you. And because he, he, was, he was a fighter when he was in Seymour. Anyway, he just turned around and gave him the finger and, and, and signed said, Johnny Cougar Day. And I'm kind of going, maybe they knew I was coming, I don't know, but why would there be a parade for Johnny Cougar? Anyway, um, Went to see Johnny Cougar at a National Guard armory, rusty old place, 200 people maybe. And I'm walking, they, they have my seats for me. And, and as I'm walking down the aisle, I hear people going, there's the MCA guy, there's the MCA guy. And it was like <laughs> his whole family or something must have been there. I don't know. Yeah. But but um, he was a big kid. He just signed a record deal with Tony DeFreeze, his manager. And um Anyway, he came out and did an acoustic version of the song I like, Chestnut Tree Revisited. My, my seats were right under his microphone, front row. And he just looked down at me, started playing Chestnut Street Revisited, like, what do you think now, buddy? And the minute I saw him do this, I, I knew he was a superstar. And his band came out, they were tighter than hell. and. He, he blew me and my local promotion guy from Cleveland's minds. I remember calling uh, Los Angeles and going to the A&R guy who sent me there. I said, hey, I just saw Johnny Cougar in concert. He is a superstar. He said, John, what are you smoking? I said, yeah, they didn't believe you. <laughs> he's a superstar. Don't drop him from the label. He said, look, I'm asleep. Um, let's talk Monday when you get back to LA. And John actually invited us to his house um, to spend the night. We stayed there an extra night because he urged us to come out to his house. And he lived with, he lived with his mom and dad. And they had a big house. I mean, maybe 40 acres. Had a barbecue lunch. And then he wanted to play flag football. And uh, I was on his team. 
and uh, he's he, he John's a little arrogant kind of a guy to be honest with you can be well, a little and, cocky uh, <laughs> he's a little cocky um, even though he was still a nobody at that time and we were playing flag football he threw a pass to one of his band members and they it was like a perfect spiral and he dropped it and he went son of a bitch I, what the what the f are you doing dropping a god dang perfect spiral and they called they said hey little bastard shut the f up so his nickname was the little bastard probably still is <laughs> um anyway so um we're back i went back to los angeles like johnny cougar mania yeah. for, for me because i i saw it and i started doing as much as i could to promote his record i my friend my uh, fellow promotion there we would go back in the back lot of universal at lunch and it, we would uh, refresh our uh, minds a little bit and uh, get to the point and come back with ideas. Mm -hmm. And one of my ideas was we'll rent a cougar and <laughs> drive the cougar to radio stations in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. And we, I, told, I told my boss that he said, you're out of your mind. And I said, well, <laughs> you're, you're gonna get mauled. <laughs> well, he said, what if we kill somebody? I went, oh, I never thought of that. But uh, I called, you have to call universal casting, you know, where all the actors and actresses are. And I called and asked, I wanted to rent a cougar. <clears throat> and they came back and they wanted to speak to my boss first and said, Are you, is this guy serious? And yeah, we're doing, we're, we're gonna, she said, well, the cougar has a handler. He's been in movies before. And it was like $5,000 to do this or something, it was crazy. So she, uh, the handler was in one car with the cage in the back with a cougar who's growling as we were driving down Sunset Strip. And we headed to radio stations and uh, a couple of them would not take their pictures with the cougar. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, this guy's been declawed. He's been in movies, even though he's growling. Right. We took pictures of the radio stations and went to Tower Records. I've got a picture of myself and uh, my, my fellow promotion man, Bob Osborne, standing in the middle of Tower Records parking lot the cougar and a, and a guy from a radio station <clears throat> behind us there's like 300 people going what the hell is going on here and i could kind of see in my mind new uh, la times um promo men arrested for killing people on the sunset strip <clears throat> and, he, and you were and you were secretly wishing that he had stuck with Mellencamp, that tony defries had not renamed him johnny well, cougar <laughs> Well, well, when we were there at his hometown, he said, what do you guys think about my name? And we went, well, I, I, we don't really care for it, but you have no choice. You're Johnny Cougar right now. And uh, he said, well, my manager told me that nobody could pronounce Mellencamp. Mm. And um, it's either Johnny Puma or Johnny Cougar. So take your, take your pick. Well, actually, I think the manager just, he didn't know he was Johnny Cougar until the record showed up at his house. Right. And he hated, hated that name. I mean, yeah. I hated it. Anyway, I just kept doing, I, I would consider crazy things to promote this kid because I knew what I, I had heard it and I saw it and much like Tom. And um, they finally said, stop working Johnny Cougar. We're going to drop him from the label. And I was mm -hmm. going, 
<laughs> don't do this, please. And um, one second, okay. I'm sorry. This is a happy Gilmore anniversary day. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so. Um, so things are not looking good for you at MCA. No, not at all, because I only got a few radio stations to play it. And the president came to my office and said, stop working, Johnny Cougar. We're going to drop him. I said, I just got one of the biggest stations in America to add this record. And he said, I don't care. Stop working, Johnny Cougar. And I said, I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. You're fired. Mm. So I'm walked out of I'm walked out with a security guard with my little box of stuff I had and escorted to my car and I had no job. Mm. And I'm going, God, I mean, I was like so close to, to getting this kid's career off the ground. And so I just bought a house in Woodland Hills in Los Angeles and um, had no job and things weren't looking good. Nobody was calling me. And then one day I got a call from a friend of mine who was now head of album promotion. I'm sorry, he was head of promotion at ABC Records. And he offered me the head of national album promotion at ABC Records, which same was the same job that I had in the yeah. And um, that was a Friday afternoon and I was, I was in my car on Monday morning zooming towards Hollywood to go to work for this kingpin of promotion named Charlie Minor. And um, I, I, I went to his office. He said, I'll make a few calls. I've never seen a guy work the phones like he did. He was like just huh? being bang, ad, whatever. And so he said, John, uh, this is going to be a great home for you. Just don't do one thing. Don't do another Johnny Cougar stunt, okay? Right. We don't like a band. Don't get involved. And I had to raise my right hand. I swear. I swear. I swear, but my fingers were crossed behind my back because I would go to a wall for any artist that I believed in. And um, uh, I said, okay, sure. And so he said, so you have nothing, there's no new rock uh, artist or albums coming out in the next few months. Just call all your radio station friends, tell them where you work now, and then call all the ABC local promotion guys and introduce yourself. And so that's what I did for the, um, that's what I started doing, first day, second day, third day. And on the third day I was there, uh, I opened my closet to get a jacket out, it was a little chilly, and a record album fell down out of the closet and it was a, had a white jacket. Mm -hmm. No and artwork, no, no artwork nothing. whatsoever, nothing. It might have said 1070/76, and I assumed it came out in October '76. This was set in 1977. Right, right. So it's it's old by industry standards. Well, I, I had no idea, and I pulled the vinyl out, and there's no song titles on it, no name of who it is. And as a, being a DJ, I I I said, I'm going to sit down and listen to this record not knowing what it was. And I hear a breakdown. And I hear, I assume the song was called Breakdown. And I hear American Girl. And wow. every hair in my body stood up. I had goosebumps. And I, 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 I just said, I just listened to something that's 
a game changer. And I asked my assistant to hold my calls and I put the headphones on and turned it up as loud as I could. And it was mind blowing. If you never listened to the first Tom Petty album <clears throat> on headphones, do so because the vocals go back right left and it was a brilliant brilliantly produced album and um so i was like i was in a trance i'll be honest with you i was in a kind of trance after hearing this incredible music and um i ran to charlie's office uh, and a white album who are these guys and he grabbed the vinyl from me and put it on the turntable and about 10 seconds later, he said, oh, yeah, that's that punk band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. <laughs> and I go to him, what do you mean punk band? He said, John, here's the real cover. Look at this guy. He's got a black leather jacket on. The bandolier. <laughs> bullets around his neck, a smirk on his face. It's a punk record. That's what radio stations have told us. And it's only sold 12,000 copies in, since October of 76. And this is eight months later. And I'm just looking at him like he's out of his mind. What do you mean punk record? And I said, Charlie, this is one of the one of the greatest albums I've heard in years. And he said, well, we're dropping the band. And I just said, Charlie, it just you told me I had nothing to do. Just give me a chance to try to call my friends at radio, send them some copies and get it played. He said, you're doing the Johnny Cougar thing again, John. Oh, no. Yeah. And so he said, I mean, I got down on my knees. I really begged him because he was he kept saying no, no. And I just begged him, just give me six weeks. If I can't, if I don't get it played, I'll quit. I mean, I'll just quit quit working Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, that punk band. <laughs> and so I called a few radio stations and they said, uh, I kind of remember that album about eight months ago. Oh, is that that punk band? And I'm kind of like, good God, what are people thinking? They even listened to the record. And uh, a few people said, yeah, we, 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 we played that record and got really good response to Breakdown. So I, very few people, but very few stations had played that record in the United States. And little did I know that Tom was over in Europe because he couldn't, he couldn't get jobs uh, in, the, in LA because nobody knew who he was. His manager, decided, yeah. his manager decided that he, his manager was, was British and thought that Tom would, would have a good chance in, in Europe. And he did. He was started to make some noise over there, but nobody, nobody knew it. And um, um, where was it? I'm sorry. So Tom, Tom. You're going to edit this, right? No, no, no editing. What? Go forward, not to worry. Oh, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, oh, I, okay, I'll, I'll start back up again. So uh, a few days later, a friend of mine named Charlie Kendall came to Los Angeles. I'd known, Char known Charlie for a long time. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, he lived in Mississippi and used to listen to me on the radio. And he was a great uh, radio guy and he was in charge of music, music director. And so I called him, I said, hey, Charlie, can I come over and I want to play this record? That'll blow your mind. And he said, all right, sure, I've heard that before. Anyway, he sits down and puts his headphones on in his apartment. And he, when the record's over, he pulls them off and his eyes are like glazed over like, who the hell are these guys? This is one of the best effing records I have heard in years. And I'm like, finally. Yeah. 
somebody in Los Angeles, nobody, nobody in Los Angeles was playing Tom Petty. Mm -hmm. And so he said, are they any good live? I said, Charlie, I just picked up the record by accident three days ago. I have no idea if they're any good live, but I do know they're playing this Saturday night, opening for Blondie at the Whiskey, a go-go. Whiskey, yep. And by chance, they were playing the Whiskey, a go-go opening for Blondie. And so we decided, hell yeah, we're going to go see this band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And we got there, and there's maybe 10 or 15 people in the in the club. Nobody knew who the opening act was. He came on about seven. And um, they played, well, the first song they played was Old Carol, the uh, Chuck Berry song, and just blew me away right away. And then they played Breakdown. And Charlie and I looked at each other like, holy crap. These guys are freaking amazing. They're not punk rockers. They're a rock and roll band. And Charlie leans over and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, on Monday morning, I'm going to start playing Breakdown once an hour, every hour. And I am like ecstatic. Finally, somebody understands. Finally understood me. And the set was over. And it was a 40-minute set, no encore. Um, and I said, since I, since I have... Charlie with me and he's telling me he's going to play the record. I decided I want to go meet this guy, Tom Petty. Mm -hmm. And we go upstairs. There's no security for an opening band at, at, at Whiskey A Go-Go. And I see Tom wiping sweat off his face. And I, I, I said, Tom, I'm, I'm John Scott. I'm the new album, head of album promotion at ABC Records. And he said, I don't give a fuck who you are. We hate ABC Records. And he said, they've done nothing for us for eight months. They've ruined our career. They've been promoting us in punk magazines, teen magazines. So, sorry, we don't like your label. And um, he said, you're probably just another nut job from ABC promising something you can't deliver. Because I said to him, right before that, I said, have you ever heard your record on the radio in Los Angeles? And he went, no, why? I said. You're going to start hearing it Monday morning, once an hour, every hour. And that's when the F-bomb started coming flying. F you, F you, yeah, you're full of shit. <laughs> and, um, and he said, get these guys out of here. They're just two nut jobs from ABC Records. And because I had now heard it, now I'd seen it, I knew right then this guy was the future of rock and roll. And so as he's having his roadie escort us out, I turned around to him and, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know why I'm saying these particular things. I said, Tom, I'm going to break your career wide open. More F-bombs at me, man. And uh, you know you can't do that. Get out of here. And then as I'm walking out, I turned around again and for no reason, I don't know why I said it because I didn't know if I could do it. <clears throat> I said, Tom, my name is John Scott. And every time you hear your record on the radio, you're going to think of me and don't you ever forget it. And more, you know, out of here. And uh, Charlie and I walked out laughing, actually, because we knew what was going to happen on Monday morning. He was going to play that song, Breakdown, once an hour, every hour. And uh, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. We felt like this, is, this band is really good. Mike Campbell, one of the greatest guitar players ever, Ben Montench. I mean, they were all so talented. I mean, and Tom, 
he blew us away. So on Monday morning, Charlie started playing once an hour, every hour. And on Wednesday morning, he um, he called and said, you won't believe this Tower Records, the biggest record store in Los Angeles, <clears throat> just called and wanted to know who the hell we're playing because they're getting calls for this particular band, Tom Petty mm -hmm. and Heartbreakers. And they ordered 250 copies. And I remember the sales manager coming in going, what's going on? And I told him, and he was like, you know, whatever. And um, uh, all of a sudden I get a call from Tony, uh, Tom's manager, Tony Dimitriatis. And he doesn't know who I am. I didn't meet him at the whiskey. And he said, who the hell do you think you are? You're pissing off, you pissed off my artist. And I went, what do you mean? He said, you've told him you're going to break his career and you know you can't do it. We're done with ABC Records. They're going to drop us from the label. And he said, I, I, want, I want to meet with you. And I, I went to meet Tom or Tony and I kind of really dug this guy's attitude. And, and uh, he, he knew exactly what I knew, that this band was amazing. Then on Friday, I, my assistant says, Tom Petty's on the phone. And I'm kind of going to myself, this could go either way. God, I'm going to get F-bombed or whatever. I don't know what. And he, he said, he said in his Southern drawl, John, um, my friends are telling me they're hearing my record on the radio, like you said. Are you serious about breaking my career? I said, Tom, I'm going to break your career wide open. And he said, will you come over to my house? I said, when? He said, tonight. I scribbled the, the address down and I took off like a bat out of hell to meet this guy. And um, he, he lived in Reseda, I believe. There was a freeway running through the yard. Uh huh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, <laughs> I went to the, knocked on the door. He, he opened the door and it was a Confederate flag. Uh, and while I'm going, I'm in the right place here because I'm from the South and, you know, we were brought up the Southern uh, and the Confederate flag was okay. Right, right. Well, it was rebel we, spirit. Our parents, yeah, the rebel spirit. Yeah. And that's just the way our parents were raised. And um, we went outside and to smoke a peace pipe, I called it. Mm -hmm. And he asked about my career. I told him, I left out the Johnny Cougar part though. Because huh? <laughs> I thought if I say Johnny Curry, he's going to say you're a nut job. Anyway, <laughs> um, I said, well, have you been in any other bands that I might know? He said, no, nah, well, one you never heard of them. They're called Mud Crutch. And I look at him and I go, you mean the song Depot Street? And he looks at me and says, how the hell do you know the song Depot Street? And at that point, we just looked at each other for like 30 seconds, like, wait a second. You're telling me you're gonna break my career. And now you're telling me, you know, a song that had three radio stations in America play. And I told him about the, my, my getting the ad and the added on a station in Nashville. And uh, we were just kind of shaking our heads like, this is, this is kind of a weird situation because I'm telling him I'm gonna break his career. I know Depot Street, how? And we bonded that night and asked him to play me something, if he had anything new, he said, yeah. And 
he went in and put a reel to reel on and played uh, listen to her heart mm-hmm. and that opening guitar line by mike campbell just catches you instantly like so many of tom's songs mm-hmm. and um i had him play it five six seven times it was so good and so I left that night and reminded him as I'm going out who I was, what I'm going to do. And the next day, I just started going crazy. I just started calling stations and tell them if they, if they hadn't heard it, I'm going to send them a new album. If they have heard it and didn't listen, or got, if they'd gotten it and hadn't listened, you're going to listen to Breakdown. And so I started getting calls back from stations going, hey, we didn't listen to that record because we thought it was a punk band. And radio wasn't playing radio wasn't playing punk music at the time. They weren't playing the Ramones or the Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols, yeah. I mean, it was called Two Thousand Nash and Joni Mitchell and you know bands of the Laurel Canyon days. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, all of a sudden, a few stations started play- adding the record to their playlist. And there's one, it was getting airplay in San Francisco at KSAN Radio and Boston at WBCN. And then in San Jose, a small station KSJO uh, was playing a guy by the name of Paul Wells. They called him the lobster on air. He was playing it. Anyway, I called my promotion guy in Boston. I said, hey, what's the deal with Tom Petty? And he said, John, both FM stations are playing the hell out of this record. And we're selling records, but you're the boss of the head of out head of promotion, Charlie Miner. He was more of a top forty kind of a guy, mm-hmm. and he called and told me to forget about working Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, play start working on the Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis single, which was whatever it was. I don't even know what it right, was. Right, right. <laughs> And you're like, no. So this, guy, this guy's basically telling all of his local promotion guys, forget Tom Petty, forget Tom Petty. Here's Meryl McCoo and Billy Davis's new smash. And so I found, well, there's another reason that people overlooked Tom Petty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I remember um, he had a gig a week or so later and wondered if I wanted to come see him. It's in Santa Cruz, California, small little uh, auditorium or maybe even a gym, I don't know. And he played and, and just, again, blew me away. And the people in Santa Cruz knew who he was because they listened to the San Francisco radio stations. And he did six encores. Mm. I've never seen a band do them in my life do six encores. Mm. And I remember they were still clapping. I walked backstage and said, Tom, they want, they want more. He said, John, we don't know any more songs. And I knew that that night I started witnessing history every night, every time he played. And his motto was kind of like, I want the, this concert to be better than the last concert. And I want my next album to be better than the first album. And um, I just started going on the road with him. And um, because I was hooked, I didn't care about anything else in the world but Sam Petty and the Heartbreakers at the time. And um, we started becoming friends. We were all, all Southern kids. And, mm-hmm. and, and the, I mean, Ben, Stan Lynch, Ron Blair, um, Mike Campbell, they were all just really humble, shy guys. 
and um, couldn't really believe that all of a sudden stations are starting to now play the record in the United States. And um, I just, I, I really couldn't do anything else except just stay on the road with those guys. And um, I got a call one time from my head of, head of promotion, Charlie Miner. He said, you got to get back here and listen to our record, get off the Tom Petty tour. And um, the president really likes this record. And he, if you can't get it played, um, don't worry, we won't be upset. And I never had, as my whole years of being a promotion man, I've never heard anybody say that to me about, if you can't get it played, we won't get upset. Yeah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And I'm kind of going, okay, well, that's, that's a red flag right there. And then he said, it's long and jazzy. And, uh, but it's by a rock band that has had a hit record called Steely Dan. Steely Dan. Mm -hmm. But when he said long and jazzy, that was like red flag number two. Right. And I'm going, oh, God. And um, they, the producer came in along with the president of the label and my head of promotion, Charlie Minor. And I'm kind of going, this is going to be awkward. And I hear Deacon Blues. Mm -hmm. Call me, um, call me, uh, call me the Crimson Tide. Call me Deacon Blues, and that minute I was hooked right there. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the album is probably one of the most incredibly produced albums I've ever heard in my life. The quality, the sound, <clears throat> was amazing. And so I asked him if they would put a a twelve inch album out with the long side of of Deacon Blues on one side and an edited version of Deacon Blues on the other side. And they agreed to do that. And I asked for blue vinyl because at this time at MCA, I was kind of like, hey, this guy just broke Tom Petty. So whatever he wants, just give it to him. So I, they gave me 500 copies of a blue vinyl of, of Deacon Blues. And Charlie Minor, the head of Top 40 promotion, picked the song Peg to be the single. And because it was the shortest song on the, on the album. Mm -hmm. and, and anyway, we set up listening parties in, in cities all across America in studios so people could really hear the quality of Asia. Mm -hmm. And that record within four weeks was like number one uh, on every station in mm -hmm. America, every FM station in America. And top 40 stations started picking it up, picking up Peg. And um, so it was like, okay, that job's done. I'm off back to see Tom Petty. Back right. to I'm America. back on the Tom Petty train. <laughs> I'm back on that train because I am seeing it every night. It's like, God almighty, he gets better every night. And um, um, so you didn't know when you had this tirade of F-bombs thrown at you at the Whiskey A Go-Go by Tom Petty that you were going to have a 40 plus year deep friendship with the man right no no idea and um um let me pause for a second um yeah 40 years um all of a sudden i went to san francisco to see the girl at, at ksa and radio who had been playing tom and having success 
And I told her we were going to put Breakdown out as a single. Again, this is the second time it had been released. It was released in 1976 when the album came out. And then we thought it was a hit record, so we released it again as a single. And I asked her, can she start playing Breakdown again? She said, John, I've played the Breakdown for eight months. And, and people love Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in San Francisco. How can I go back on a playing breakdown again. She said, you gotta give me something new, something different, um, a live version. And there was no live version of breakdown. So I went, bingo, man, that's a great idea. <clears throat> and went back to Los Angeles, asked Tom if he would do a live broadcast with, with the station K-West in Los Angeles who started playing him. And still K-West at this time was the only station in Los Angeles, FM station playing Tom Petty. And, um, K-West was a pretty small station trying to beat the big FM station in town, KMET. And uh, so Tom agreed to do a live broadcast at Capitol Records and in front of 75 contest winners that the station had a you know, promotion for. And I just told him, I said, I just need a, the most kick-ass, baddest-ass version of Breakdown you've ever done in your life. I mean, he, he was going to play a full concert, but I said, I, that's what I need. And they did it. They put Mike Campbell just, if you listen to Breakdown Live, uh, I think it's an American treasure. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's amazing. And I think that's what really broke Tom Petty's career because I sent that out uh, a few weeks later on a reel to reel cassette. I mean, I'm sorry, a reel to reel uh, uh, tape. And I think I said in a letter, Tom Petty's career starting to take off. Uh, don't look at the album cover, just play the fucking record. <laughs> right. And, um, and all of a sudden, it started being added all over America, except for 90 stations, FM stations. And these guys were controlled by a radio consultant who were starting to make their presence known because um, whatever FM station in whatever market was number two, that's the station they would go for to hire them to be the consultant. And they would tell the station what to play, uh, basically how to structure the whole station. If you were number two in the station in the market, you wanted to be number one, so you would hire these guys as a consultant. Burkhart, Abrams, and Douglas was the name of the company. And they were not playing Tom Petty. I think two of the stations were playing Tom Petty out of theirs, and but but he he considered them a punk band, and, uh, <laughs> without hearing them, right? Well, I don't even know if he listened to it, but um, uh, I said, well, I mean, we've got so much penetration. I'm just going to go concentrate on the top ten markets in in Los, in America because he controls stations in every one of these markets, and I went to Dallas first. <laughs> and uh, the music director um, was, was the morning guy. I came in to have breakfast with him and he said, I'll be off in the air in 15 minutes and just have a seat in my office. And I saw Billboard magazine. And uh, before, I, before I left on the trip, Charlie Miner came in and said, you won't believe this, Tom Bay and the Heartbreakers made the charts. We're number 177 out of 200 albums. And I was like, static. I mean, like- Yeah, they're on the list. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so um, 
I pick up Billboard. Just I just wanted to see it again. I opened it up to album 200, top 200 albums. And I saw 177, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But it was a circle around it saying, don't play this record. It's a John Scott hype. Mm. And I was furious. And the program director came in and said, he said, John, the consultant told us we can't play this record. It's a punk, it's a punk band. And I'm just baffled again. These guys didn't even listen. So they were lo located in Atlanta and I got on a plane instead of going to another city, I flew right to Atlanta to meet this guy, Lee Abrams. And I just walked in there, walked in and his office and said, I want to see Lee Abrams. And he, um, he met with me and said, well, there's a couple of stations in, in our chain in 90 stations that are playing the record. And I'm hearing, starting to hear a few good things about it. And we've kind of been watching what's going on around America. Uh, let me sleep on this. And I'm like, well, at least I got a chance. And the next morning I woke up and he said, <clears throat> so do you think ABC Records would sponsor a Lodo tour? And by that, I mean, if the station's 103 on the dial, the tickets are a dollar and three cents. Right, right. So the record company had to pay for the bus, pay for the hotel rooms because the band wasn't making any money on. Right, they on made the a dollar three, basically. Uh, <laughs> they probably, yeah, I didn't pay for any. I mean, we were playing two, like 2,000 seat auditoriums and the station was giving away tickets on the air for a dollar three. I remember the first, one of the first times I was standing in front of the theater and I was giving away tickets, like just, just come inside. We, we wanted people to come inside and see that band. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and Lee Abrams came to one of these shows and flipped out just like I did. And immediately added it to the 90 FM stations that were missing. Mm -hmm. And that completed the puzzle. So this really, this is this is when things really took off. Live, the live breakdown song, I believe, is one of the reasons that Tom Petty's career just uh, went to went cuckoo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, every station in America is playing it. And we went to number four. They re-released Breakdown. And uh, it went to number 40, I believe, on the charts on Billboard magazine. Mm -hmm. And I can't I can't remember exactly how how what number the album was, but it was up there. Yeah. And so ABC now is faced with a band that's selling records and they were going to drop them. Now they got to re-sign them. Mm -hmm. And so they re-signed them. And I don't know what the deal was, but I'm sure it was better than the first one. The first deal Tom had at Shelter Records, he was getting paid $10,000 a year for his publishing to all of his songs. Wow. If you're a songwriter, you don't sell your publishing. Right. And he didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, um, is, this what, is this what inspired the Damn the Torpedoes? Is this the story behind, behind that? Pretty, yeah, pretty much. Um, so they had, yeah, they had to put a second album out. And uh, it was called You're Gonna Get It. Mm -hmm. And you, you, I listened to her heart was on there and that was gonna be the first single, except it contained the word cocaine. Uh-huh. With your money and your cocaine. 
Yep. So um, that's what FM stations were playing. They were playing the hell out of that record because they could get away with it, where top 40 stations couldn't. So ABC tried to get Tom to change it to champagne with your money and your champagne. He said, well, it wasn't, he, Tom said, well, it wasn't champagne, it was cocaine. And I'm not going to change the lyrics. I'm not going to do that. So it really didn't make a big smash on um, AM stations, but FM stations were just all over that song. Mm -hmm. And um, Tom Petty was starting to sell records. And, um, and then that's when things got a little crazy at ABC Records. Um, we heard that MCA Records wanted to buy ABC Records. Uh -oh. Lock, stock, and barrel. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm with Tom. And I said, look, I just got fired from there, to be quite honest with you six months ago. I don't know if I want to go back there. And he said, well, they want me to come over and keep the same contract that I have. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to MCA records. They, they didn't do anything with Depot Street. Mm -hmm. and, right, uh, right. As mud crutch. Yeah. As mud crutch. So why would I go to MCA? And so um, uh, about that time, around that time, uh, uh, Somebody, a producer played me a, a song called Children of the Sun by Billy Thorpe. And uh, Billy Thorpe was an Australian singer, probably the biggest singer in Australia. And I just flipped out over that record. I was still working at ABC. And I took it back to ABC to play it for them. And they said, we're not signing, signing anybody. And I went, wait a minute, that's kind of weird here. I've got Tom Petty in my pocket. I got Steely Dan. Yeah. Now, why would Not good they... enough for you. Yes. What, what else do you want? And so um, I took my friend from RCA Records. Oh, no, he, was, he worked at Capricorn, I'm sorry, to the studio to hear Children of the Sun again, just to get his opinion. And he heard it and flipped out as well. It's a space opera. Mm -hmm. If you've never heard Children of the Sun, just go into a room, turn the lights off, and be blown away. Oh, I grew up with it. Are you kidding? That was one of my favorites. Yeah, that's a, that, that was a good one to um, to get a little buzz on and just turn the lights out and listen. To anyway, um, so he sent that, my friend at, our, at Capricorn sent it to his boss, Phil Walden at Capricorn Records. And Capricorn was a, you know, a, a Southern rock band, the Allman Brothers and Wet Willie and, oh God, um, any Southern rock band you can think of, that, 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 that was Capricorn. Mm -hmm. And he sent it to him in New York. And he was, Phil was in New York at the time and he was going back to Macon the next day. He got the, the uh, cassette, I think it was a cassette. And, and they had, Capricorn had, had their own jet. So at about seven o'clock at night as the sun's going down, they get on the plane. 35,000 feet in the air, however, whatever, and put on Children of the Sun. And these guys at Capricorn were, um, uh, they like to get a buzz on, I'll just put it that way. Uh -huh. So you can imagine sitting in a private jet, listening to a space opera about aliens coming to Earth. And they called the producer the next morning, Capricorn Records did. And, and signed Billy Thorpe over the phone. And then I get a call from Phil Walden 
wanting to hire me to be to a new Capricorn Records promotion guy. And this was like at the same time MCA was going to buy ABC. Mm. So I took the job because it was another increase in salary. And um, and Tom just, he said, I'm not going to MCA. And so he didn't, and they filed the lawsuit. And um, for the next two years, basically, <clears throat> I think uh, Tony's, I mean, uh, Tom's manager, Tony Dimitrios, hooked up with a guy named Elliot Roberts, who was manager of Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And, and um, he told Tom to file bankruptcy, file for bankruptcy. Mm. And that would void the contract because it was a terrible contract. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't know, they were kids from Gainesville, Florida. They didn't know any better. They didn't know any better whatsoever. And they just knew they were signed to a label. Yeah. They were that, Leon Russell, that Leon Russell was on and yeah. J.J. Kale. And um, so they were, you know, just happy to have a record deal. And um, so uh, Tom just played for two years while this lawsuit was going on, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. Never hit, it wasn't opening for anybody anymore. Right. Because that's all he used to do is open for different bands. And... Um, all of a sudden, Capricorn Records filed for filed for bankruptcy. This is about we we broke Children of the Sun at FM Radio. It started off in Dallas, Texas, with a guy named Danny Owen, the local Capricorn promotion guy, and we broke Children of the Sun to be, and it became a hit record. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, they filed for bankruptcy, Capricorn, and I'm like, I'm out of a job again, <laughs> and. Uh, not too long after that, I got a call from Tony Dimitriotis, Tom's manager, and said, we've worked out a deal at MCA. We're going to be on a small label called Backstreet Records. Mm -hmm. Do you want to come to work for Backstreet Records as head of promotion? And I'm kind of going, Tony, they just fired me six months ago. He said, John, you're the one that's going to be calling the shots. Right. Backstreet Records is run by a kid named Danny Bramson, who was the booker of, of acts at the universal amphitheater and he was he knew he knew his music and he kind of was the golden boy at mca universal and he wanted his own record label and we gave it to him and he signed tom petty and the heartbreakers because cameron crow you know the produ producer jerry Maguire and yep almost famous director and yeah director and producer and former director. husband of nancy wilson of heart that's, that's yes. correct <laughs> yeah and he told Danny, you got to sign this band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Because I think Cameron, Cameron and Tom had become friends. <laughs> anyway, so they they worked out a deal where Tom's debt was wiped out. He owed the he owed MCA five hundred thousand dollars. Wow. In the advance that ABC had given him. And I think the deal was for three million dollars. And the next thing I know, I'm at back at MCA Records but working for Backstreet Records in a little separate bungalow in the studio, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, like uh, you know, movie stars would have their own little bungalow. And, um, and Tom came up with Damn the Torpedoes. And you're right, I think it, it's, it, it was partly of all the troubles that he had been through. Mm -hmm. full, Damn the Torpedoes, full speed ahead. 
And when that album came out, FM stations were playing five tracks off that album. Mm-hmm. And he was in, in, in orbit. And I think the record went to number two on the album charts and uh, was there for weeks. And it, it never made it to number one because Pink Floyd had the Wall album. Ah, but for Pink Floyd. But for Pink Floyd, damn. But Tom wasn't too unhappy. He was number two on the charts, selling bigger and bigger, more more bigger concerts and bigger venues, and and um, so that's he just exploded. That was it. I'm gonna pause us one now, and then so so let's jump into uh, "Damn the Torpedoes" because that was that was a massive. Like you said, there were so many singles that came off of that one. And album tracks actually, and and singles too. Um, um, what was the first single? I can't even remember now. Um, um, whatever it was, it, it it took off, and that was Tom's breakthrough album. Mm-hmm. And um, I worked there for about a year, and was offered another job as head of album promotion for an independent promotion company, and it was really a lot of money, and. I, I, Tom, I, by that time, Tom was established playing 20,000 seat arenas. So I took the job <coughs> and um, worked on different projects that um, that I liked. The Go-Go's, I remember, in Berlin, that song Sex. And, mm-hmm. um, the Devo, <laughs> whatever. And, and I... I I didn't like the atmosphere at this company, especially, and I quit after five years. And started so that was only five years at Backstreet? No, it was only two years at Backstreet. Or maybe even one and a half, just because I knew Tom was off and running and playing you know, huge concerts. And um, my job there was basically done, except we, we knew we would be friends for life. Yeah. I mean, we didn't live far away from each other, and um, we talked all the time. Yeah, because you both lived in the valley, right? He did. Yeah, he was now living in Encino in a real big house, and um, he was on top of the world. And, and then you would have, didn't you have Christmases together and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Tom had, Tom um, would have Christmas parties, Thanksgiving Day, Easter, um, and it was really wasn't, it was only for the road crew, some of his friends, and my, my family would go, and it was some of the most incredible times I've had in my life, because at, like at Christmas, uh, we would all give gifts to each other, and Tom and his wife Jane would pick out a gift for each person that they knew would like they would like mm-hmm. for example he knew i was a radio guy he gave me a, a like a 1950s retro radio <clears throat> and i remember giving him a kind of an old 50s ashtray or st- ashtray stand because he used to, he smoked a lot which is one of the things i didn't like about i never really i, I just hated the time smoke so much but anyway cigarettes and uh, well, a few other things, but, um, but, <laughs> but these parties were amazing. Like at Christmas, you would you would you would have have dinner, and George Harrison would walk in, and Bruce Springsteen would walk in, and all of a sudden there was a jam in Tom's little studio. 
and you just never knew who was going to be there. And uh, Roger McGuinn of the Birds, and they would just jam. Ben Mott was playing guitar. Tom was playing drums. Uh, Roger and Mike were playing guitar. I've never seen Ben Montense play a guitar, have you? No, never. Never. Oh, this is what these parties were like. They were just so much fun. The Easter parties were so much fun. Tom was like a kid in a candy store hiding eggs before the kids would come out there. And um, just some of the best times of my life, I'll be quite honest with you. Because he was on top of the world. I felt like I was on top of the world. And, you know, um, it was just, it was just, it was just an incredible part of my life. Um, and then the traveling Wilburys came along. Mm -hmm. That was my next question about the Wilburys and your experience with them. Well, I, I really never met Bob. Um, I might have met Bob once, but I, I never really met Bob. I never had met George. Never had met. Uh, I had met um, Jeff Lynn, and I never met Roy Orbison. But Tom and I were. Um, I had started my own business, and I had to buy a fax machine. And I showed that he came over to my Tom came over to my house for something, and I showed him this fax machine, and I faxed something to somebody, and he's like wait a minute, you put in this piece of paper and it goes to somebody else and they get it. And he said, I, I gotta get one of these fax machines. Amazing. <laughs> I know, it's amazing. And so the only two people we knew who had fax machines was me and him. So we started faxing each other. The precursor to email, what a fantastic thing. It's instant. <laughs> <laughs> it's instant. And he was like, holy crap, this is fun. And so he would just, he would fax me back just, well, one fax said, um, hey, anybody home? I want to, John, I want to enter, I want to show Roger McGuinn of the birds how, to, how, how this fax machine works. So I sent him something and immediately I get back. Thanks for the fax demo, John, Roger McGuinn. And I'm a fan of the birds and I'm like, anyway, so Tom, Tom, and then the Traveling Wilburys album came out and we were still faxing each other. And he wanted to know about how, how, how the record was doing in the charts and what was the feeling of the record company. I didn't work at the record company, but I knew a lot of guys who did. And he said, why, he would say stuff like, why aren't they putting out uh, Handle With Care mm -hmm. as the first single? And we would go back and forth and he would put doodles on stuff and write funny things. And I, I saved every fax. And, and I put, oh, by the way, I should say for the audience that um, that in your book, Tom Petty and Me, there is a fantastic series of pages that you have in the book that are that are uh, images of the of some of these really wonderful faxes that you and Tom were trading back and forth in those years. Thank God I saved them, and I've still got them on thermal paper, and uh, I, I treasure these faxes because. So many people have told me it's one of their favorite parts of the book mm -hmm. uh, because it showed a different side of Tom and his silliness. And he, he was a funny guy. I mean, you, you could, I could go over to his house, knock on the door, and within five minutes, he would make me laugh. Mm -hmm. And he would do stuff like, I bet I can make you laugh. And he'd say, Rutabaga. And he didn't laugh, he'd go, Rutabaga. 
and you'd start laughing. <laughs> just crazy little things like that. He he just he was a funny guy, humble guy, shy guy, really a shy guy, and um, just a lover of music. He was a he was a student of music from from the R and B days of Little Richard, like myself, and the British Invasion. He loved British bands. Like, I think a lot of Southern people love British bands. I'm not sure why, but we loved anything British. Electric Light Orchestra, David Bowie. But Tom was a student at that. He he really uh, he really had a great collection of music. And that is the kid he grew up with, like myself. And um, anyway, so we dubbed these things called. I came up with the idea of going, Tom. Let's just use these for for you to email radio stations or fax fax email yeah. fax radio stations uh just anything you want to do like hey wbcn boston this is charlie t wilbury saying that the traveling wilburys are coming and the radio stations would get these faxes and call me and going uh did tom petty just send a fax <laughs> i'd say yeah that's that was tom and he said well his numbers on the machine and on the, on the thermal paper can we fax him back? I said, sure, he'd love it. So he starts getting faxes back from radio stations. And he is in seventh heaven, man. He is just, you know, off the charts. And then, um, like I said, we, I saved all the faxes and um, still have them on thermal paper. And this is when Tom finds out that it's not just you and he who have the uh, two fax machines in the world. It's everybody else, too. <laughs> everybody else, yeah. Uh, people, people still go, I can't imagine Tom Petty standing in a fax machine, yeah. putting something in a fax machine that's just crazy, silly stuff. Well, and the great thing, too, is that, you know, you see you see each other's handwriting and you see his little doodles and things and you can't. You know, I mean, you can't do that by email these days. <laughs> no, it's so, no. so handmade. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. I, I I love that part of the book too, and and um, I've still got other faxes that I haven't uh, I didn't put in the book just because they weren't quite high resolution enough. But I mean, on thermal paper, they start you know start fading. <clears throat> a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, that was a great time of our lives because. We dubbed it the Traveling Wilburys Fax prom Promotional. Uh-huh. <laughs> Something I don't know. And then you're and then so your 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 friendship continues through all of the years. And then um uh then in we're moving forward, you know, uh really quickly here, but um tell me yeah. about that last show at the Hollywood Bowl on September 25th, 2017. 925 17 I'll never forget the day uh, I saw him in on that tour in Memphis my hometown and we were backstage and he came out and we hugged each other hadn't seen each other in a while and I said hey Tom how you doing and he said well I'm having trouble hearing in my left ear and I've got a few aches and pains but nothing that's going to stop the show and you know I didn't think anything about that and I did kind of wonder when he was going up the stairs on, on stage and, and it in May of 2017, Steve Ferroni was kind of holding him, mm -hmm. kind of pushing him up the stage a little bit. I thought that was kind of, I thought that's kind of weird, but I didn't really think too much about it. And then um, he, the, he was going to end the tour in Los Angeles, three shows at the Hollywood Bowl. And I just decided I only wanted to go to one, the last one, because there were rumors that 
this was going to be his last tour. It possibly would have been, he said, I, I remember reading or hearing him say, there might be a Wildflowers tour next year, small venues, and I'm just going to play the whole Wildflowers album. Yeah. But nobody knew for sure. Right. And it was 40 years, because this was the 40 year mark. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and I used to kid him, I said, you know, it should be the 41st anniversary because your record came out in 1976, actually. But whatever. <laughs> anyway. Nobody knew about it, but it did. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so I decided to go that one night and X Sirius XM Radio invited me down. They were doing a live broadcast. And um, I came on after a guy named Keith Evelyn, who was, um, uh, he started a, a great fan page called Tom Petty Nation. Mm -hmm. There's like 38,000 people on there. And it's just a great place to hang out for, with Tom Petty fans. And I found out Tom Petty fans are like no other in the world. I've never seen an artist have fans as, as faithful and rabid as him. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful, wonderful group of people. And there's a lot of them. And I'm a member. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> anyway, um, so I so I did the came, I came down and I was the last person they interviewed about six thirty I think it was and we my daughter and I had gotten there early just to make sure we didn't you know run into traffic I didn't want to miss this interview and they started asking me what you're asking me now how this happened and I started telling the story and at about the same time I learned later at the at Tom's memorial from his wife Dana that they had gotten into the limo. And of course the radio was on Sirius XM channel 31, Tom Petty radio. <clears throat> and he said, hey, did they just say John Scott was gonna be interviewed next? And he said, she said, yeah. He said, I wanna hear this, this interview. And so he heard the interview and I told it like it was. And he turned to his wife and said, everything John Scott just said is exactly the way it happened. And I didn't know that at the time that he was listening. So I go to my seats. Um, I didn't want to go backstage. I knew there was going to be a lot of people there, a lot of artists, George Harrison, um, you know, Jeff Lynn. I, I just didn't want to go backstage. I could have, but I didn't want to. Went to my seats, sat through Lucinda Williams. I wasn't a gigantic fan, but whatever. I ate dinner with my daughter and um, concert starts. And I mean, you know, the Tom Petty fans are crazy. and. And he plays four songs without speaking to the audience except for thank you. And then on the fifth song, I think it was, he said, um, I want to dedicate this next song to a, a friend of mine. You may not know him, but his name is John Scott. Um, six months before we were going to be dropped by ABC Records, he went to the radio stations with a vengeance. And he got our that record played on the on the radio, and we we're forever grateful. And he goes into "I Won't Back Down," and I'm sitting there like I didn't know this was going to happen. I was crying. I was elated. My yeah. daughter was. <laughs> I look back as that was a gift that he left me. And um, concert was incredible as usual. And I've never seen a bad Tom Petty concert. I've seen hundreds of them. 
And so after the show, there's a party backstage. And Tom, at this point, is not, uh, at this part of his career, he's not the guy who stays around and hangs at the party because he knows people want something from him. Right. He just wants to. And the other members of the band are kind of standing by themselves. So he, when he goes off stage, he's the first in his limo and he's gone. He's probably in Malibu by the time people realize he's not coming back for another encore. And uh, it was a great party and um, the whole band was there except for him. And um, I did notice a little limp uh, as he was leaving. Not really noticeable, but you know, we later found out that he had fractured his hip. And um, a week later, we hear on TV a bulletin, rocker Tom Petty has, has died. And my daughter was with me and my wife, and we just, we were in shock. You can't, that can't be true. And um, then I think Rolling Stone put out that bulletin. And then it came back to, well, he's not dead, but he's, um, he's in a coma or something. And I couldn't sleep that night. And I woke up the next morning and it was confirmed that he was dead. And I still can't believe it, to be quite honest with you. I haven't, it hasn't, uh, what do I want to say? It, it hasn't landed. It hasn't landed. I mean, I, I still don't believe it, that he's gone. And part of it is because he left us such a great treasure of old songs that have been re-released. And the buried treasure show mm -hmm. was Tom at his funniest. And he played records that you just, it was in his collection. Mm -hmm. And uh, buried treasure was a great radio show. And you get to hear Tom a lot on there because he did the shows. Sometimes he was funny, sometimes he was serious. But um, I just haven't, it hasn't, it hasn't, um, I still don't believe it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And um, I, I was working on a book with a friend of mine, and we were writing stories about some of the artists that we had worked with, like The Who and Johnny Cougar and Leonard Skinner. And, and I got up the next morning, I said to my buddy who we were writing, I can't, I can't, I can't write about The Who. I can't do anything. I, I, I'm, I'm in shock. And uh, he understood it. And I don't know, maybe a week later, two weeks later, I mean, I never thought about writing a book. And uh, I, I have dreams about Tom every once in a while, or Tom in a, at a concert or something. And one night at about three or four o'clock in the morning, he came to me in a dream. He said, call your book, Tom Petty and me. And I jumped up at three o'clock in the morning and went to GoDaddy where I buy my domains and typed in TomPettyandMe.com. It was available, I clicked on it. And the next day I started writing. And I never kept a journal. Uh, all these stories are just etched in my mind. And uh, it was the most incredible ride I've ever been on in my life, hanging with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But they're such genuine, down-to-earth, great people. Tom was a wonderful man. Um, he never forgot who helped him on the way up. 
and um, I, I, I had a house flood in Woodland Hills, California, and I, I it um, I had, we were sleeping on army cots that were donated by the Red Cross or something. And Tom heard about it, and he said, "No, you're coming over to my house, and you're going to live with us." And you you were there for a month. For a month, I was there for a month, and we we were digging out the swimming pool. <laughs> the water was six feet up in, in the. I lost so many. I lost so many valuable things uh, at that during that flood that I wish I still had. But we did save some of the great things like the faxes and stuff. But and then I moved to Hawaii and uh, built a house with my wife and. Um, we moved in in like May of um, May of 1992, and in September a hurricane hit, <clears throat> Hurricane Aniki, and it was like 215 mile an hour sustained winds. It was powerful, and it took the roof off my house, and uh, no power. That we heard there's going to be no power for six to eight weeks. A small island. And um, next thing I know, three or four days later, I, I get a call uh, saying, Tom Petty just sent you a generator via FedEx. Yeah, because you couldn't get them on the island because there weren't any left. Well, they had one hardware store in, well, on the North Shore of uh, Kauai in Princeville, and they probably had 10 generators. And they were gone. <laughs> you know, there were people in line. So. Yeah. We're like cooking on a barbecue, little barbecue thing, anything in the freezer. <laughs> and so, so I get a generator and I'm like, nobody in our neighborhood had a generator. And so I remember getting up at seven o'clock in the morning, we would watch NFL games and I have like 10 guys over at the house because in Hawaii, they came on at seven in the morning. And, um, but that, that was just Tom. I mean, he, he never forgot. And that's one great thing I love about him. And, and Tom is, he's like, he's probably in my mind, the most iconic rock and roll star there will ever be. His music is generational. So many times when people, I sign every book that, that I send out and I'll dedicate it if somebody asks me to so-and-so. I get so many kids that say, would you dedicate this to my dad, Paul? who turned me on to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers when I was 10. I can't tell you how many I get like that. And it just shows me that Tom's music is generational. It, it will be generational forever. It is, and, and the other thing is that he has such a massive catalog. I mean, there's yeah. so many, we're, we're always discovering new, you know, deep tracks, you know, <laughs> thinking, oh, wow, I never yeah. heard this before. You no, know? exactly, exactly. And some of them are really good. I mean, really good. Uh, uh, for real, the song for real, what a great song that was, and doesn't matter anymore, which wasn't released. Why I don't know, but no, you're right. He he was he was a guy who could write a song that most everybody could relate to, and he could write it probably in under three minutes. And him and Mike Campbell collaborate collaborate collaborated a lot. Uh huh. And um, they just were, he, he was, he was a master songwriter. Yeah. And he knew it. And it just came to him sometimes. He said, it just, 
I was just sitting there like he would, like I remember um, uh, Free Falling, he had this one guitar like he kept playing over and over, but it was just the beginning of the song and he had to quit and people were going, Tom, stop playing that one guitar riff. And I think Jeff Lim came over, Jeff Lim came over and heard it and said, just start singing. And she's a good girl, loves her mother, loves Jesus and horses too. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, Jeff Lim's going, that's great, that's incredible. And you're thinking, really? <laughs> loves Elvis too. And um, he was just a master songwriter. And um, that's why there's some, he, he recorded so many things that just, he would say were gifts to him sometimes that they just came into his mind or he heard something um he heard he heard a, a tv commercial or something i remember um in the traveling wilburys the song um one of the songs has just george harrison took pages out of a magazine and handed it to each one of the wilburys and if it said big refrigerator that was in the song Tra uh, if you go back and listen to the Traveling Wilburys, I can't remember the song's name, but um, that was just Tom. And um, he, 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 you know what? He, he sounded like the birds originally and um, jingly jangly, but he made the music his own. And that is hard to do. And um, um, what a song crafter. I mean, God. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's the Rolling Stones, there's Bruce Springsteen. <clears throat> Not many bands have been together for 40 years. Right. And him, he's so, he was such a prolific writer. Now we're finding out more and more of the stuff that you're talking about that's coming out. And um, like I said, he's, he's, he's a it's, it's gonna go, it's gonna be longer than we ever live. It's generational. Um, kids, Pop, moms and dads turn their kids on to Tom, Tom and them, and, and their kids now are turning their kids on to Tom. I also love how his his loyalty to uh, friends and bandmates and how even when he went off to do Full Moon Fever, his solo album, he brought in most of the Heartbreakers played on that album. Right. Especially well, I think, yeah, especially I think Denmont too. But I think they were at first they were a little upset about that. Yeah. Because why is Tom Petty doing a solo album? And right. He, I think a lot of the band Ben Mott was a is a great studio musician, and he's he was busy. And um, Stan, I think they were having a little problem at the time. And Mike was doing. I think he he had written um, "Boys of Summer" for Don Henley, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so he was. So Tom just decided, hey, I'll just make a solo record. But you're right. Eventually, the band came in, and that was one. Of the, that was one of my favorite albums, um, uh, "Full Moon Fever." It's it's iconic. It's one of the ones that really sticks in my brain. But you know, that almost didn't come out. That right. album. What's the story? What's the story behind that? Of how "Full Moon Fever" almost didn't happen? Well, Tom called me and said he he would always call me before he put a record out and ask for my opinion. And and uh, I, I went to his house and I heard Free Falling and 
and you're gliding over Mulholland and I just closed my eyes and I felt like I was just flying. And and then um, running down a dream, I think it's the last song of the album. And I turned to him and said, Tom, this is some of the best music you've ever done in your life. And he said, well, we have a problem. MCA Records wants us to go back into the studio and record more songs. They don't think there's a hit on the record. <clears throat> and I was kind of like, <laughs> MCA. Here we go, MCA Records again. <laughs> and so um, he said, you used to work there. Do you know anybody over there that could help me or help us? Help the Anyway, so I did know a guy that just went to work for him. He was head of album promotion. His name was John Hyde. And he had been wanting to meet Tom. He'd call me a few times and wanted me to take him over there. So I said, hey, you want to go over and listen to Full Moon Fever, Tom's new album? And um, he said, yeah, I haven't heard it yet. So yeah, so we went the next night to Tom's house. He played Full Moon Fever, full volume, blasting. And John Hyde basically said the same thing. This is one of the best records, Tom, you've ever done. And Tom said, again, we have a problem with your record company. They want us to go back in the studio because they think there's no hits. And John Hyde is the guy's name. And he said, I'll take care of that. And the next day, as legend has it, there was a big, gigantic meeting of, you know, meeting of all, you know, like I said before, the president and uh, sales guys and the end of the, at the end of the meeting, somebody said, does anybody else have anything to say? And, and John High got up on top of this big, gigantic conference table, started jumping up and down, going, who the fuck says there's no hits on Full Moon Fever? Get that record out now. And people were like, look at him, like, this guy's out of his mind. But he kept persisting, and Full Moon Fever came out shortly I, thereafter. He was right. <laughs> he was right. I mean... Come on, if you think about it, I mean, running down a dream. I got one of the best driving songs in the world. Uh, learning to fly. I mean, oh my God. But so, you know, things happen for a reason. That's all I can say. Yeah. Things happen for a reason. There's no doubt in my mind that things happen the way they're supposed to happen. As demonstrated by your career and your connection to Mr. Tom Petty. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, boy, yeah. It's kind of crazy. I remember um, hearing this song when I was doing independent promotion. I was with two DJs and it, it came on and <clears throat> it was Jenny Jenny 8675309. Yep, I remember that. And, and, I fell in love with that record and was doing nothing at Columbia Records. And these two stations added it on Monday morning and they had a promotion call me up and said, how did you do that? And they hired me to work this, this record. And um, um, I, I went over to Tom's house and played him 8675309. And he said, I want Tommy Two-Tone on my tour next time. And he called him. All of a sudden, Tommy Two-Tone calls and says, he wants me on his next tour. And that was the kind of guy was he? He heard a song, he liked it. He wants that band on his tour, and um, that happened quite a few times. The, the Georgia Satellites, pretty little thing. Let me light your candle, cause Mama. I remember that? Yeah. Yeah. He he had them on tour, but um, he was a great guy. I, I that's all I can say is he's one of the greatest guys I ever met in my life. 
He's my hero. And um, if you're not on Tom Petty Nation, get on Tom Petty Nation and just join in the fun because that's another reason that tour was such a big success is because they started doing meetups mm -hmm. in different cities. And people who were fans were meeting at the same place, which I don't think had ever happened before. And all of a sudden the fans came together and now we're friends. And this Facebook page, Tom Betty Nation, just erupted mm -hmm. because there were meetups in every city on that tour. And that's another one of the reasons I think the fans are so close to each other because they're friends on Facebook now and they met each other. Right. And I think, um, I think a lot of things. <laughs> it's all, and it's all, it's inter, intergenerational because I've been to some of those events and you've got, you've got, you know, kids in their early twenties and you think, wow, you know who Tom Petty is, you know? Yeah, exactly. Let's turn them on to him. So what a beautiful <laughs> thing that even though he's not here, his legacy has continued on and it will continue, as you said. You know, it's funny. I, 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 um, I have a few Tom Petty t-shirts, as you can imagine. And uh, when the book came out, I, I was at, I was at Gelson's in um, in Sherman Oaks, and I had a Tom Petty shirt on. And people would just stop me, going, "Oh, I love Tom Petty," and I happen to have a business card on me. And I say, "Well, I knew Tom for forty years." And I would hand him a card, and I would sell a book <laughs> would sell that afternoon. Yeah. And um, I thought, you know, I should just go to shopping malls and you know, got a t-shirt on and I'll just sell books. Um, but it's still selling. It's, do it's doing great. I still go to the post office every day. As a matter of fact, uh, I got an hour. But um, <laughs> before the post office closed, I love going to the post office. It's one of my favorite things. I'm the shipping clerk. I'm the guy who signs the books. I'm the guy who prints out the label. And I love that part of it because uh, somebody asked me one time, um, would you um, consider going with somebody else or not doing it yourself? Because I self-produced this mm -hmm. book and I just didn't want to give up all my rights to everything. I mean, I own, own everything out free and clear. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a couple of people come up and ask if they, I would consider doing and something documentary, rockumentary based on my book. And hopefully that comes to fruition because the stories in that book are different than any other Tom Petty book. Mm -hmm. I mean, Conversations with Tom Petty is about, mostly about the songs he wrote. Right. Warren Zane's book, uh, the biography, is an incredible book, but it didn't really, they don't really show the different side of Tom that I showed. Right. Right. And the behind the scenes at the music business, at the music level. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and and it's a great ride. And um, and just so everybody knows who's listening, uh, those links are on the uh, the the little intro blurb on Podbean and Spotify and Apple, and you can they can find you there. Yeah. And, um, I I just I want to thank you so much. First of all, for thank you first for doing this podcast with me. And secondly, thank you, thank you for, for fighting for airplay for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers because as we know, the rest is history, right? Sometimes people ask me what would have happened if I hadn't picked up that record by accident. 
and and really the answer is nobody knows. I mean, more than likely, sure, he might have been signed by another label, or he could have said, you know, screw this, I'm going back to Gainesville. Yep. Um, but you were the guy. You were the messenger. Supposed to be. It was supposed to be. I was an outlier. It was supposed to happen. And uh, I, I'm really proud of that. I'm, I'm really, really proud of that. And I really appreciate you having me on my show because this would be like a six-hour show probably. <laughs> no, it's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. <clears throat> oh, my, my, yeah. well, my audible book just came out. I did an audio version of the book. Yes, that too. And a lot of people in overseas now are buying the Audible book because the shipping of my book is like $20 to London. Yeah, which and, is how much uh, the book is, basically. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, I, think, I think the shipping is more than the book I'm selling the book for. The book's selling for $19.50 now because that was the year Tom Petty was born. And right. Well, originally it was $19.76 because that's when the album originally came out right right i just keep changing it around i just like <laughs> to do funny things and that was great it's great anyway so thank you so much for having me on this has been a blast i mean um you're so easy to talk to and i really appreciate that and letting me blab this long my god that's awesome i loved it <laughs> Sorry about that part of it. No worries. Thank you. And that was my epic chat with John Scott. Thank you so much to John for his time today. It was a really wonderful talk. Incredible stories about everybody from David Bowie to Tom Petty and everybody in between. So hope you guys enjoyed. Today's special treat, we're going to close with a track from the man himself, Tom Petty, off of Full Moon Fever, Running Down a Dream. Take good care of yourselves, take good care of each other, and I will see you on the other side. Some time. There's some.
I'm picking up Whatever 